Most of this is just a, a book report stitched together from all kinds of sources, so I don't want to take any credit for it except for the mistakes. Uh, and there's too many sources to cite most of them. This past Monday was the Feast of Our Lady of Ransom. We'll take a close look at that in a little while. But before we do that, by way of background, we'll start with a very brief description of several interesting and largely unappreciated aspects of the Muslim religion. As usual, the cut quotes will be cut and pasted. First, we'll briefly consider the tactic which is called takir or el takia. When we hear the word takir or el takia, we should think strategic lying. Takia is the Muslim practice of lying through your teeth for strategic purposes. Here's an explanation given by an Islamic scholar that one Islamic website proclaims to be, quote, one of the greatest Islamic jurists and theologians, close quote. It's Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, lived from 1058 to 1111. Al-Ghazali, quote, Speaking is a means to achieve objectives. If a praiseworthy aim is attainable through both telling the truth and lying, it is unlawful to accomplish through lying because there is no need for it. When it is possible to achieve such an aim by lying but not telling the truth, it is permissible to lie if attaining the goal is permissible and obligatory to lie if the goal is obligatory. Close quote. Speaking is a means of achieving objectives. When it is possible to achieve such an aim by lying but not telling the truth, it is permissible to lie if attaining the goal is permissible and obligatory to lie if the goal is obligatory. So the practice of the key is nothing new. The strategic lying deception stretches all the way back to Muhammad. One Islamic website goes into some detail as to what sort of things are actually permitted. Quote, al is an integral part of the Quran itself. It was practiced by one of the most notable companions of the so-called prophet, none other than Amar ibn Yasur. The meaning is that the tongue is permitted to utter anything in a time of need, as long as the heart is not affected and one is still comfortable with faith. This means that it is permissible to lie to save oneself. It is legitimate to utter words of unbelief. And it is acceptable to smile at a person while your heart curses him. Close quotes. Isn't that beautiful? Now let's be clear, I'm certainly not claiming that every Muslim does these sort of things. Uh, far from it. I mean, not every Catholic follows the teaching of his church either. The long and short of it is, the religion of Islam permits and sometimes even obliges Muslims to engage in taqiyah, deception, and strategic lying, and this includes even lying under oath. And depending on the circumstances, it is morally acceptable and even obligatory for them with the one proviso that they really don't mean it in their heart. So that's taqiyah. There's one other feature of Islam that many people are not aware of, abrogation. Abrogation. See, Muhammad's teachings changed over time. The rules changed. The later so-called revelations could and did cancel earlier teachings. For example, early on, wine drinking was allowed. But a later revelation, so-called revelation, canceled that. 
It abrogated that earlier revelation, and ever since then, wine drinking has been forget- forbidden. Now, all this applies to any discussions about jihad, the so-called holy war of the Muslims. These days, we hear a lot of nonsense about jihad from Islamic sources, that it means the struggle for self-defense, that Islam is a religion of peace, that in terms of combat, jihad only refers to self-defense, etc., 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 But once we know that it is a good and necessary thing to lie through your teeth as needed, it becomes a lot easier to understand that what we are really hearing is a load of taqiyya. So what is jihad? A 13th century Islamic scholar, Imam Nawawi, sums it up, quote, Jihad means to war against non-Muslims, signifying warfare to establish the religion, and it is the lesser jihad. As for the greater jihad, it is spiritual warfare against the lower self. The basis for jihad is found in such Quranic verses as, one, fighting is ordered for you, Surah 2, 2.16. A surah is a, a section of the Quran. It's uh, roughly equivalent of a chapter. Two, slay them wherever you find them, Surah 4.89. Three, fight the idolaters utterly, Surah 9.36. Close quote, Imam Nawawi. Okay, now there are three stages of this lesser jihad. That's not the self-disciplined jihad. We're talking the one in which the Muslims are ordered to fight non-Muslims utterly and slay them wherever they find them. That's the jihad we're talking about right now. The three stages of jihad, quote, stage one. When Muslims are completely outnumbered and can't possibly win a physical confrontation with unbelievers, they are to live in peace with non-Muslims and preach a message of tolerance. We see an example of this stage when Muhammad and his followers were a persecuted minority in Mecca. Since the Muslims were entirely outnumbered, the so-called revelations Muhammad received during this stage called for religious tolerance. So that's stage one, tolerance. Stage two, when there are enough Muslims and resources to defend the Islamic community, Muslims are called to engage in defensive jihad. Now, once Muhammad had formed alliances with various groups outside Mecca, and the Muslim community had become large enough to, become, to begin fighting, Muhammad received a so-called revelation calling for defensive fighting. And that so-called revelation then abrogated those earlier so-called revelations which preach religious tolerance. Although Muslims in the West often pretend that Islam only allows defensive fighting, perfect example of taqiyah, Later so-called revelations show otherwise. So that's stage two, defensive jihad. Stage three, when Muslims establish a majority and achieve political power in an area, they are commanded to engage in offensive jihad. That's worth repeating. When Muslims establish a majority and achieve political power in an area, they are commanded to engage in offensive jihad. Once Mecca and Arabia were under Muhammad's control, he received the call to fight all unbelievers. And as should be obvious by now, that so-called revelation abrogated the earlier revelations about defensive jihad. It's clear then, when Muslims rose to power, peaceful verses in the Quran were abrogated by verses commanding Muslims to fight people based on their beliefs. Now, Islam's greatest scholars acknowledge this. For example, Ibn Kathir, that's Islam's greatest commentator on the Quran, sums up stage three as follows, quote, 
Therefore, all people of the world should be called to Islam. If any one of them refuses to do so, or refuses to pay the jizya, now the jizya is a tax that non-Muslims have to pay to their Muslim overlords, simply by the virtue of the fact that they're not Muslim. No, so all people of the world should be called to Islam. If any one of them refuses to do so, or refuses to pay the jizya, they should be fought till they are killed. Close quote. So stage three is offensive jihad. Close quotes in that section. So the three stages are stage one, Muslims are completely outnumbered, can't possibly win a physical confrontation with unbelievers, so they're supposed to live in peace with non-Muslims, and using the principle of taqiyya, preach a message of tolerance. Stage two, when there are enough Muslims and resources to defend the Islamic community, Muslims are called to engage in defensive jihad, using taqiyya to conceal the ultimate goal, which is stage three, when Muslims establish a majority and achieve political power in the area, then they are commanded to engage in offensive jihad against everyone who is not Muslim. So jihad is a fundamental duty of all Muslim rulers. Truces are allowed, but a lasting peace is never allowed. As soon as Islamic forces are in a position of strength, in other words, as soon as Islamic forces have reached stage three, then virtually all contact between them and the outside world becomes warlike. And this is total war, war with no distinction between combatants and non-combatants, and war that does not end and cannot end until every place and everyone on earth has submitted to their religion. That's what they mean by peace. That's Islam. In the late 1700s, a thousand years into this program, a Muslim ambassador from Tripoli summed up the timeless Muslim attitude in one concise phrase. He was having a conversation with Thomas Jefferson, who at that time was our ambassador to Paris. And the Muslim ambassador told Jefferson that, quote, it was written in the Quran that all nations who should not have acknowledged Muslim authority were sinners, that it was their right and duty to make war upon them wherever they could be found, and to make slaves of all they could take as prisoners, and that every Muslim man who should be slain in battle was sure to go to paradise. Close quote. Islamic law teaches that it is legitimate for Muslims to live off the infidel world. In other words, they have a divine sanction to seize whatever spoils they can. And that principle has an obvious and immediate application in the realm of piracy. Looting the goods of Christians is seen as a good thing in and of itself because according to Islamic teaching, a pirate is simply a man who takes a jihad to sea. And if that isn't bad enough, Islam teaches that a pirate is forgiven all his sins simply by placing his foot on the boat in order to wage war on the infidels. And the pirate who gets killed in action gets twice the supposed reward uh, that's supposed to be awaiting the land-based Islamic warrior killed in action. Inspired by these diabolical doctrines in the 7th century, Islamic leaders started launching wave after wave of attacks against the shores of Europe. These official actions were supplemented by thousands of lesser raids, carried on by minor Muslim commanders and even by private individuals. This new Islamic piracy surpassed in scope and destructiveness anything that had ever been seen before. They captured towns and their inhabitants, plundered churches and monasteries, put the faithful to sword, or dragged them into slavery. 
According to Islamic law, it's called Sharia, there are only four ways to deal with infidel hostages. Execution, enslavement, ransom for Muslim prisoners, or exchange for ransom. So execution, enslavement, exchanging with Muslim prisoners, or exchange for ransom. Now to add to the horror, under Islamic law, the master is permitted to have his way with his woman's slaves, and this doesn't threaten his marital status. And that's explicitly stated in the Quran. As a result of Islamic piracy, the entire Mediterranean became off-limits for trade. Large, heavily armed fleets might move safely through the Mediterranean, but it's very different for merchant vessels. These traveling alone or in light and, small, light and slightly defended groups were never safe. The Mediterranean remained a very dangerous place for all merchant shipping until the early 19th century. Large stretches of Mediterranean coastline became uninhabited and uninhabitable. Pirate attacks were common in Portugal, South and East Spain, the Balearic Islands, the Canary Islands, Sardinia, Corsica, Elba, Sicily, Malta. In one attack on Malta, the entire population of the island of Gozo, five to 6,000 Catholics, were captured and they were all sent in chains to Libya. Attacks were common across the Italian peninsula. Uh, if you've been to the Holy House of Laredo, anybody that's visited the Holy House of Laredo can't help but noticing that the basilica on the outside, it looks like a giant fortress. That's because it is. Because right down the hill is the ocean. It's a fortress to protect from Islamic pirates. The pirates would occasionally venture into Atlantic waters, raiding up the northwest coast of the Iberian Peninsula. On at least one occasion, they struck Iceland. England was certainly not free of the tax. In one seven-year period, this is a seven-year period between 1609 and 1616, in one seven-year period, 466 English ships were seized by the pirates. In 1625, a thousand people were taken captive after a raid on the West Country. In June 1631, Islamic pirates captured almost all the villagers from the little harbor village of Baltimore. Now, Baltimore is in County Cork. It's on the southern tip of Ireland. Captured almost every one of the villagers of Baltimore, and only two of those ever made it back to Ireland. Although the pirates looted the ships they captured, their primary goal was to capture slaves. And they did so in massive numbers. Over the years, millions of Christians were captured and enslaved by the Muslims. Now, in the midst of all this Islamic horror, well, the Spanish were still very much in the midst of their glorious Reconquista. Remember that Spain had been overrun by the Moors in, in 711. And the Reconquista is this glorious war and it took 781 years to drive the Muslims back into North Africa. In the midst of this Islamic horror, on August 1st, 1223, the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to a pious layman, St. Peter Nolasco, who at the time was living in Spain. She told him that it would be very pleasing to her and her only begotten son if a religious order was instituted in honor of her mercy and their members should devote themselves to delivering captives from the Muslims. That same night, she also appeared to St. Peter's confessor, St. Raymond of Penyfort, as well as King James of Aragon, telling the same thing. She wished them to exist in founding a religious order dedicated to freeing Christian captives from the Muslims. So ten days later, on August 10, 1223, King James established the Royal Military and Religious Order of Our Lady of Mercy for the Ransom of Captives, the Mercedarians. That's where we get that beautiful Spanish name, Mercedes. 
It's from Our Lady of Ransom. Most of the members were knights, and they guarded the coast to ransom the prisoners. The members of the order bound themselves by a fourth vow to ransom Christians by giving themselves up as hostages when necessary. This pious work spread everywhere and produced heroes of charity who collected alms for the ransom of Christians and often gave themselves up in exchange for Christian prisoners. One famous example being St. Raymond Anatus, whose feast we just celebrated on August 31st. To give some idea of how effective they were, under the guidance and protection of Our Lady of Ransom, between 1223 and 1632, the Mercedarians ransomed 490,736 slaves. Of course, with the problem this great, they weren't the only order in the church involved in the ransom of slaves from Muslims. For example, between the years 1198 and 1787, the Trinitarians ransomed some 900,000 slaves. In the period between 1642 and 1660, the Vincentians, under St. Vincent de Paul, and St. Vincent de Paul, as you remember, was himself captured and spent time in North Africa as a slave before escaping. So you can imagine he definitely had this in his heart. So, between 1642 and 1660, the Vincentians ransomed 1,200 Christian slaves. And to give you an idea of what it cost, the ransom for those 1,200 slaves came to 1.2 million pounds of silver. An average of 1,000 pounds of silver per slave. I want everybody here to take a moment and think about that. Between 1642 and 1660, the Vincentians ransomed 1,200 slaves at the cost of 1.2 million pounds of silver, an average cost of 1,000 pounds of silver per slave. To get some idea of what kind of money we're talking about here, today silver is going at about $35 an ounce. That's a troy ounce. There are 12 troy ounces in a troy pound. And so 1,000 pounds of silver pencils out to be about $420,000 per slave. In the parishes, besides the poor box, there'd be a box for the ransom of the captives. Our ancestors had the faith. And it cost. It wasn't just the collections that were amazing. The life of St. Raymond Anatus gives us some idea what these men went through in order to ransom the captives. This account has been condensed from the work of Father Alvin Butler. He got his information, I quote, from the Chronicles of St. Raymond's Order and other memoirs collected by Pinius the Bolendus, close quote. So St. Raymond Anatus was born in Catalonia. That is now like in the south, the south province in the southeast uh, corner of Spain. He's born in the year 1204. He's given the name Nanatus or unborn because he's delivered by Caesarean section from his dead mother's body. She died in trying to give him birth, and so the C-section went out. After he had grown, he's accepted in the Mercedarians by St. Peter Nolasco himself. He was so fervent and made such great progress in virtue that within several years of his profession, he was appointed to succeed St. Peter in the office of ransomer. St. Raymond sailed to Algiers with a large sum of money and purchased the freedom of a great number of slaves. 
When the money ran out, he voluntarily gave himself up as a hostage for the ransom of other slaves whose situation was the hardest and whose faith seemed exposed to the greatest dangers. The Muslims treated him with utter barbarity until they thought in their fear that he was going to die from their treatment and then they'd lose the ransom that they'd agreed on. So at that point, he was given some freedom to walk about the city and he immediately took advantage of the opportunity to encourage and comfort other Catholic slaves and even converted and baptized several Muslims. When the governor of the city discovered this, he condemned St. Raymond to death by impalement. The men who were waiting for the ransom appealed lest they lose their money, and so instead of appealing, impaling him, he was given a bastinado. Now, there's different ways of doing it, but as a torture, typically they take a rail and, you know, that's set up several feet off the ground, and they take a guy and lash his bare feet to that rail, and then they just start wailing on the soles of his feet with a club or with a cane, and just beat the soles of the feet. It's terrible torture. As soon as he was able to walk again, he began encouraging and comforting the Christian slaves and instructing and exhorting the Muslims to convert. Now when the governor heard of this, he commanded that St. Raymond should be whipped at the corners of all the streets in the city, that his lips were to be bored through with a red-hot poker in the marketplace, and then his mouth was going to be locked shut with a padlock except when he had to eat. He was loaded with iron chains and cast into a dark dungeon. He lay there for a full eight months until some other men of his order, who had been sent by St. Peter Nolasco, bought his freedom. St. Raymond would only leave under an obedience. He's begging God, that God would accept his tears, seeing that he was not worthy to shed his blood for the souls of his neighbors. Upon returning to Spain, Pope Gregory IX made him a cardinal and called him to Rome. So the saint set out on a journey, but he only made it six miles from Barcelona, and he was struck down with a violent fever. Less than the breviary states that St. Raymond was growing worse and worse, begging for the last rites, and the priest had not yet arrived when an, angel, when an angel appeared, clothed in the habit of the Mercedarians, and gave him the Holy Viaticum. Now, for those that don't know, the Holy Viaticum is just a term which refers to giving someone who is dying their last Holy Communion. So Holy, Holy Viaticum is a last communion in preparation for death. He died on August 31st, 1240, at the age of 36. Let's start wrapping this up. Nothing has changed in the teaching of Islam. It can't change. None of it. And these things are still going on. I'll just cite two examples out of many that could. A recent report from the government of South Sudan, as everybody here I hope knows, there are many Catholics there, estimates there are 35,000 of their women and children being held in slavery in North Sudan. Think of what's going on with the Coptics, both Catholic and Orthodox women of Egypt. They're being kidnapped into Islamic slavery today, right now. And that's only to mention two examples out of many. This is still going on. And the reality that is very pleasing to our Lady and Only Begotten Son to invoke her mercy and deliver captives, that will never change either. 
Let's close with a few slightly edited reflections written by Father Butler two centuries ago. St. Raymond gave not only his substance, but also his liberty. And he exposed himself to the most cruel torments and death for the redemption of captives and the salvation of souls. But how cold is a charity in our hearts nowadays, even though it be the essential characteristic of true Christians? Far from the heroic examples of the saints, do we not, merely to gratify our extravagance, vanity, or greed, refuse to give the superfluous parts of our possessions to the poor? Are not we slothful and backward in visiting or comforting prisoners or sick persons or in procuring some relief for the distressed? Have not we become so insensible to their spiritual miseries as to be without any feeling for them and neglect even to commend them to God with sufficient earnestness or admonish sinners according to our circumstances and the rules of prudence, or instruct by ourselves and others, those under our care. Have our lips been pierced and padlocked shut? Or have we been whipped and beaten in order to prevent us from sharing the gospel with our non-Catholic neighbors. Or rather, have we not maintained a guilty silence out of motives of self-love and fear? When we ponder all this, It is not obvious that self-love reigns in our hearts and not the love of God in our neighbor, whilst we so inordinately seek and pursue our own worldly interests. Let us sound our own hearts and take an impartial view of our lives. And then we shall see whether the love of Christ which is charity, or that of Satan, which is self-love, be more sensible in our affections. And which of them is the governing principle of our actions?